Welcome to Grace in Public, preaching and teaching in the heartland and all around the world. What happens when we discover that we're wrong? I mean really wrong, and that we've been wrong for a long time about something really important. It's affected others, it's affected us. We've made decisions based upon a false premise. What do we do? How do we react? Please take some time and listen to this clip very carefully. Turn to Luke 24, starting at verse 11. And their words, that's the news about Christ's resurrection, the empty tomb, and their words seemed to them as what? Idle tales. And notice how much they were living in faith. <laughs> and say the next words. And they believed them not. Then arose Peter and ran unto the sepulchre, and stooping down, he beheld the linen clothes laid by themselves, and departed, wondering in himself at that which was come to pass. Behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem about threescore furlongs. And they walked together, or rather they talked together, of all these things which had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holding that they should not know him. And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these that ye have one to another as ye walk? And uh, say those words with me tonight. And are sad. You're talking, you're walking, and you're sad. Three things. Uh, but they were also reasoning things out. And their reasoning made them very sad. All right? Verse 18. And one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answering, said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, and has not known the things which are come to pass? There in these days. And he said unto them, What things? Now notice, notice the, the beautiful approach of our Lord. What things? As if he didn't know. Huh? You <laughs> and they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet, mighty indeed in word, before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. In other words, obviously set up the kingdom to deliver them from Rome. And beside all this today is the third day since these things were done. Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulchre. And when they found not his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels which said that he was alive. 
And certain of them which were with us went to the sepulcher and found it even as the woman had, women had said. But they saw him not. Then Jesus made this statement. O oh, fools! And A.T. Robinson said, This is a passive, a rather perfect passive indicative for the old word terrasso, which means you are stirred up, upset, excited because you're foolish. Now, dull, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now, he's going to quote from the Old Testament and give it some authenticity and validity from verse 24, or rather 27, and he's starting to quote it to put his seal of approval on the Old Testament and the prophecies. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. They drew nigh unto the village whither they went, and he made as though he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. came to pass, as they sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it, and brake, and gave to them. And their eyes were open, and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. They said one to another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way, and while he opened to us the Scriptures? In verse 45, as they were repeating what had happened, but referring to what the Lord was saying about why are you troubled in verse 38, and why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as you see me have. And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they yet believed not, notice that, and while they yet believed not for joy and wonder, he said unto them, Have ye here any meat? And they gave him a piece of a broiled fish of an honeycomb, and he took it and did eat before them. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets, and in the Psalms, concerning me. Then opened he their understanding, that they might understand the Scriptures, and said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer, to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins <coughs> should be preached <coughs> in the name, <coughs> in his name, among all nations beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things, and behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. 
he lifted up his hands and blessed them. It came to pass while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. They worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, praising and blessing God. Amen. Now I want you to notice in the 24th chapter of Luke how that though they had heard Jesus predict his death and burial and resurrection, their hearts were dulled and they did not believe. And even after he manifested himself, it took some time before they began to believe him. And finally, when he began to move toward them and with them and open up their hearts, he said, I want you to preach repentance to all nations. One of the great things that incapacitates people from understanding the Word of God, from going on with Jesus Christ, is that they don't understand repentance. Repentance, you ever, you ever seen anybody that had a root of bitterness that's really repented of something? You ever see anybody that walked around sad that had a lot of repentance that, that had gone on in their lives? You ever see anyone that went through trials and kept through them for a very long period of time? who had understood the doctrine of repentance. One of the most critical things in the lives of sinners is not what they've done. It's their inability and inner capacity to repent. Repentance makes us dull if we have not experienced total repentance. If we do not repent, we're dull, slow of heart, troubled, and foolish. Repentance does something very unique. There are a lot of people who, right here in this ministry, who are not living in overt sin. But in their mind and in their emotions, they do not know what it is to repent. If they went out and sinned with worldly, carnal, overt sins, they would repent. But they do not know how to repent of sins of the soul, the mental attitude sins, the sins of the emotions, the sins of, of, that goes on in the conscience. They don't know how to repent. So often they try it and they end up with sorrow. They try repentance, and all repentance does is bring condemnation and sorrow that doesn't go away. So then they go back and lay it aside. Hundreds and thousands of Christians, Christians do not know what repentance is all about. They repent of obvious bad sins, but they do not know how to repent of mental attitudes. So roots of bitterness trouble them. Negative spirits trouble them. 
Fleshly evaluations trouble them. Presumption troubles them. Supposition troubles them. Trying to play God troubles them. And then they end up knowing it and condemn themselves. It's a vicious cycle. I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians 7 before we go back to Luke 24. The reasons that hundreds and thousands of people do not have peace is because they have never entered into godly sorrow, and that doesn't mean a great emotional display. It simply means the quality of conviction that results in repentance through God. It doesn't mean that you sob and shake. You might do that, but that won't do you any more good than just repenting without it. If that's your makeup, go ahead as long as you repent. Now, notice 2 Corinthians 7, verse 8. For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent. Can't you imagine some of them at Corinth? They got that letter of rebuke and reproof, and they got angry. And uh, that didn't help Paul's uh, popularity too much to be that bold and frank for that letter that he wrote them. He sent it with little Titus, little five foot, five foot one Titus. Five foot one and all man. <laughs> okay. For though I wrote you, uh, you made you sorry through a letter, I do not repent. For though I did repent, for I perceive that the same epistle has made you sorry. Now, notice what he's talking about. It made them enter into a sorrowful state in the soul, but it didn't produce godly repentance. That's what messages do to backsliders who don't want to get right. A message to a backslider that doesn't want to get right makes them sorry. When was the last time you got sorry over somebody's message somewhere? Radio, television, here, somewhere else. When a message from the gospel makes an individual sorry and troubles them, it's because they don't understand godly sorrow. Godly sorrow means cleaning up everything with God because it's true and going all the way with God and turning our back on anything that stops us being true to God's heart and God's Word. So in verse 9, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you what? Sorrowed to repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner that you might receive damage by us in nothing. Here's what he said. When your heart is right with God, when your soul is right with Jesus Christ, and, and the Holy Spirit convicts you, then you don't consider that anybody has damaged you. Because you're not dealing with earthly relationships 
You're dealing with godly sorrow. He said, because you repented after a godly manner, you don't consider that we did damage to you by saying what we said and by writing what, what I wrote to you. Now, notice this in the next verse. For godly sorrow, verse 10, godly sorrow worketh what? Repentance. Godly sorrow works repentance. Now, notice it. Not to be repented of. Now, are you getting there with your mind? Godly sorrow works repentance not to be repented of. You know what this really means in the Greek? This is what it means. I've got to read a little bit more before I explain what Robinson and others bring out in the Greek. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. Somebody said, they haven't said it for ages here, thank God, but uh, let's forget here. Just, just imagine. Somebody said, I haven't got anything out of messages for ages. I just go home and I'm condemned. Well, the truth makes you sorry if you're not ready to receive it and respond to it in God. There's, there isn't anything in this world that makes a, uh, the creature more sorrowful than the truth that comes from the Creator. I mean, you can't kick it. You can't resist it. It's there. And I mean, when the Word of God is spoken and the invisible Holy Spirit goes with the Word of God and convicts the heart and it pierces the soul and tries to divide the soul from the Spirit so we can repent, and so we will repent. And when this happens and we don't want to line up with God and something's holding us back, we enter into a sorrow that produces death. And the sorrow produces Spiritual death, meaning it separates us from many different doctrines in the Scriptures. You would be shocked at how many Christians that are going to heaven don't know godly repentance. You would be shocked at how many things are in their memory box, in their frame of reference, that have not been purged with the blood that have not been cleansed by the grace of God, that have not been released through Calvary, that have not been totally dealt with by the Word of God in doctrine, you'd be amazed that how many Christians go around repenting of repentance. Okay, that means B, C, D, months in between, they say. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. Now I wonder if I was right. Now I feel awful. So they repent of repenting. Now, the eleventh verse is a very beautiful key. For behold, this selfsame thing that you sorrowed after a godly thought. Notice this. What carefulness it wrought in you. Yea, what clearing of yourselves. I want to stop right there. 
he says, when there's a godly sorrow that works repentance, what a clearing goes on in your soul. What a clearing in your conscience. What a clearing in your mind. What a cleansing. What a purging. You get all cleaned up and all cleared up and you begin to have a tremendous capacity with God, after God, and through God, and for God because of godly sorrow that works repentance. Thank you for tuning in. If you can, don't forget to send a tax-deductible gift to us. Your generous donation made to our program promotes this broadcast and ones like it going out on the Internet and broadcast on local stations throughout the United States. So please prayerfully consider what you can give. Find out how to give your donation at www.graceandpublic.com. Wasn't that a good message on godly repentance, really? Really. I like to think of the Apostle Paul, starting out Saul of Tarsus. We see him in the scriptures. He's an amazing example of Christian transformation. From Paul's writings, we learn about the new man. We learn about the new person that Christ has made us to be. He's not only an example, but he's used by the Holy Spirit to pen inspired scripture. Words from God through a man. In Philippians 3, starting in verse 3, For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Hmm. goes on to say that he might have confidence in the flesh, that he lists his credentials. But we see there was a great change of mind that happened in his life. He lived his life, and he was really very wrong about God, about who God was, about the nature of God's character. And he did some terrible things, and they're alluded to in the scriptures. But then, as a transformed man, he doesn't live in the consciousness of those things anymore. He learned how to deal with his past and in being wrong. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, in verse 1, again Paul writes, Do we again commend ourselves, or need we as some others, saying, Do I need to tell you? Do I need to explain to you? Do I need to prove to you who I am and why you should listen to what I'm saying? <laughs> in verse 5 he says, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. And this is the bottom line. And when we come face to face with being wrong, as believers, find out that our concepts were incorrect, that we function under a wrong premise. amazing thing about humility, meekness, is that we can receive that. We can, we can make the paradigm shift. And sometimes God uses people, really, to show us things. Sometimes it's things that they say or things that they do. Or over a process of time, the Spirit of God reveals to us. Sometimes there's a person speaking, but really the Spirit of God is speaking to our inner ear at the same time, using those words. They may not even realize. They may not even be believers or have the same frame of reference 
or the same worldview that we have. But we hear the words and they strike home. The Spirit comes in and does some work in our heart, and we have a choice in that moment on how to respond. In Psalm 25, verse 9, the meek he will guide into judgment, and the meek he will teach his way. Verse 10, all the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth unto such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. Testimonies of the Lord, what what are those? There are these different words in Psalm 119. Testimonies is an amazing word. And it talks about the stories, really, the accounts given of Old Testament saints and New Testament saints. And how they came to certain points in their life, God revealed himself to them. Their lives were changed, and they, they needed to change their mind. They needed to have God change their mind. And they were available to receive that change. And in receiving it, and beginning to walk with God, and believing, and investing faith in the person of God, amazing things happened. And we, you can go all the way through the Old Testament. Abraham and Moses and Samson and Gideon, King David. Amazing the transformations we see in people's lives. And then in the new, Peter, Paul, Stephen. Amazing men? Yes. They became amazing men. Because when confronted with truth, they made a decision to trust God, to trust in Jesus Christ. And when they did that, God transformed them into the image of his own son. And the life of God was revealed through their human lives, through their decisions. Second Peter 3, starting in verse 15 in the B part. I'm going to read this one in the New American Standard because it becomes a little difficult to understand in the King James. Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and the unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures, to their own destruction. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, on your guard, so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men, and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Ooh, that's good. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, that he would transform our thinking. And when we would come face to face with the reality that there was something wrong, we embrace the truth. And God leads us and guides us in judgment. And in that meekness, He will teach us his way, and we will grow and become better human beings in this life. Not better in the sense of righteousness, because God has given us the righteousness of his Son, but we will grow to become more able, to become more skillful, for God to be revealed to others in a clearer way. We'd love to hear from you, so please go to our website and contact us. The web address is www.graceinpublic.com. So maybe you haven't been wrong about 
how to raise your children. It's not that you were wrong about the decision you made of what job to take or whether or not to go to college. All of these things are important decisions. But right now, we are going to talk about the most important decision, which is to receive Christ as your Savior. Some say, who minister in nursing homes and with elderly people, that for this elderly person to come to Christ, it's, it's amazing when they do. Because in a way, when we come to Christ and say, you are my Savior, I am a sinner, and what I do and how I've been has been all wrong. My whole life has been wrong, but now I make a good decision. I receive you as my Savior. For those older people, that is quite a thing. It means all that they've done and how they live their lives. So much past behind them. To then come and say, wow, and realize I was wrong about a great many things. And that really my whole life was all about Jesus Christ and I didn't know. Whether you're older or whether you're young, tell you now to make the decision to receive Christ as your Savior is the most important decision you'll ever make. Would you like to be wrong for the rest of your life and never even know it until you stand before God in that great day after you breathe your last breath and this life is over? No, I would say no, you don't want that. That's not what you want. Better, better to cast yourself on the rock now <laughs> and be broken than have that great boulder of the of the kingdom of God roll over you and crush you to powder in that day. So be meek now, and Christ will teach you. Ask him into your life. Come to him. He stands at the door and knocks at your heart. Open the door and let him come in. May you pray a prayer, something like this. Lord Jesus, I've been wrong. I've been wrong. I've been wrong in thinking I would be good enough to get into heaven all on my own. I've been wrong about who you are. I've been wrong about a lot of things. Today, I ask you to come into my life. Transform me. Make me whole. Today, God, I agree with you. And I make a good decision. Come into my life. Cleanse me of my sin. Teach me your ways, I pray. And I ask these things today. In Jesus' name, amen.